This is Climate Psychology Conversations. Hi, I'm Ray Tokfer. This episode, Climate Anxiety. Throw a stone on the internet these days, and I nearly promise you that it'll hit an article on climate anxiety. And I can prove it by doing a Google search right now. Okay, so 15 hours before I started writing the script for this episode, Teen Folk published Climate Anxiety in High School, How Young People Are Coping, and it's pretty typical of the genre. It's an Earth Week piece, and it highlights 18 teen stories of how they experience climate-related anxiety. In it, one 17-year-old, Elena, is quoted saying, I have anxiety, and I have spoken to my therapist about how I feel that I'm running out of time for my future because the world is rapidly decaying. My therapist has helped me by finding things that can distract me when I start thinking about this topic, such as journaling or watching a show I really like. For better or worse, that's Teen Vogue on April 21st, 2022, and it's stupendous that climate anxiety is getting more and more public and clinical attention. But you've got to ask, is climate anxiety actually the right focus for climate-aware mental health care? I think anxiety doesn't kind of cover the complexity and the depth of experiences that we really need to have be included in our ideas of what climate distress and environmental distress encompasses. That's Wendy Greenspan. She's a New York City-based climate-aware psychotherapist, and she's a regular giver of trainings and workshops on how clinicians and communities can approach climate emotions. She's given a speech about it at the UN to an audience of 600. She's the real deal. But Wendy doesn't even use the term climate anxiety. It's limiting the scope of what we think the problem is that needs to be dealt with. You know, just that people are feeling anxious and that's a, a problem of fear and we need to address the fear. So if that's true, what else is there? Anxiety can be a signal that there are many other feelings going on. It can be a signal of fear, terror even. Then there's the range of sadness, depression, despair, hopelessness, grief. Then there's guilt and shame about that I haven't done enough, that I'm part of the problem. Then there's frustration with governments, with the inaction, anger, all the way to rage, you know, just feeling impotent and so frustrated. And then there's a continuum of sort of shutting down, numbing of the self, feeling apathy, which often underneath that is a lot of care. So I think all of those and probably many more emotions exist under that umbrella of what is referred to as climate anxiety. Research backs Wendy up here. In just the last few months, Panu Pikula, a climate emotions researcher at the University of Helsinki, published a paper that collects climate emotions into what he calls a climate emotion taxonomy. It's sort of like a 19th century natural history museum's butterfly collection, but for climate emotions. There's a lot of emotional tones which haven't got the attention that they deserve. But if we can understand more about those feelings, then we can also encounter them more constructively both in ourselves and in others. I asked Panu to describe some of these feelings. This moral outrage dimension, uh, noticing the injustices around climate change and the very sort of important and also morally valuable anger 
that has hasn't got as much attention as it would uh, need to get, I think. And Panu also describes positive climate emotions. We have to live our lives in the midst of this climate era. And it would be a terrible world if people wouldn't have the right ever to feel joy or relief or, or happy happiness or, or pleasure. As for the term climate anxiety, under the surface of its buzzwordy, soundbitey ubiquitousness, Panu found that the emotion is actually far more complex. And the word anxiety itself has a wide range. And I wanted to make sure that this wide range of anxiety comes out also in relation to climate anxiety and eco-anxiety. For some people, it brings out this image of nearly pathological anxiety or even an anxiety di- disorder. And that, of course, is more broadly linked with disavowal or sometimes denial. It's tempting for many people to try to keep a distance at this phenomena by trying to think that it's only neurotic people or people who have, for one reason or another, some mental issues who are feeling this. Wendy is also concerned about all of this pathologizing. The other reason I don't like to use the term is anxiety is often considered a kind of a psychopathology. It's a treatable mental disorder. A disorder, along with all the other severe disorders. I can't help but imagine skimming over the pages and pages of the anxiety disorders section of the DSM, and I can't help but feel some concern. Wouldn't it be so easy for a well-meaning professional to slip the word climate before the term anxiety disorder and whoop, you've discovered a malady in need of a cure, except for it's not exactly a malady and the solution is probably not going to look like a cure. I'm reminded of Elena, the climate-anxious adolescent in the Teen Vogue article I quoted at the beginning of this episode, whose therapist taught her to watch TV to distract herself from intense anxiety. Was the therapist truly addressing Elena's climate anxiety? Or was the therapist's approach fixing a natural fear as if it was an abnormal response? I wanted to hear more from Wendy about what ideally climate-aware therapy actually should look like. And here's her answer. Most of us in the climate-aware therapy world really think that climate distress is a reasonable and expectable and often even useful emotional reaction to what's going on, uh, as opposed to meaning that something's wrong with you if you're feeling this way. So for Wendy, instead of trying to lessen the anxiety, the question really becomes, how do I want to live within this unfolding crisis? How do I want to find meaningful ways to engage? If someone is too overwhelmed with distress, they, they can't engage in helpful ways or meaningful ways or join with others. Um, they either get really overwhelmed or they um, turn away. Part of my ideal in helping someone with their distress is validating what they're going through, that how important that is, um, being able to help them not be overwhelmed by the emotion. So it might be about calming the nervous system, having ways to um, manage the emotions so that they're in the, um, the window of tolerance, which is you know feeling enough distress, alarm, concern to stay aware and engaged, but not so much that it's too overwhelming and you, you can't manage it. And then really helping 
uh, the, the, the folks that I'm seeing in treatment be able to connect with other people because I think not feeling alone in it is really essential, both emotionally, but also in, in practice, you know, joining a community. And then uh, also being able to take action. And action's not for everyone, but action can be all kinds of things. It might be writing poetry. I've had a lot of people who end up changing careers and deciding to focus in the climate arena. I can really get behind the idea that taking action is the best end goal for climate-aware therapy. But then the next question is, take action? How? When someone says to me, how do you maintain, like, what's your number one action we should do, Sarah? And they're probably expecting me to say something like, go vegan. But I actually say, pay attention to your vagus nerve, you know? like <laughs> That's Sarah Jaquette Ray, a professor of environmental studies at Humboldt State and the author of the aptly named book, A Field Guide to Climate Anxiety. Our physical and mental health are the front lines and the field of action for climate mitigation. While Sarah is a big advocate for the way climate anxiety has become so prevalent. I have felt myself, because of my own dread and anxiety, finding a sense of purpose, finding community in ways I'd never did before, finding a reason to wake up in the morning, really appreciating every single precious moment on this planet. She also has, to put it lightly, some concerns. And so climate change can fuel a lot of fear big emotions that are actually deployed for really hostile, harmful uh, purposes. And, and there's a long history, actually, in the American environmental movement of doing that. And so I didn't, I didn't really see how that related to climate anxiety in, in, in my book, A Field Guide to Climate Anxiety. I wrote about it there, but it wasn't a primary theme. But the book came out on the heels of George Floyd's murder. And in the middle of uh, this new reckoning, this sort of second wave of Black Lives Matter movement happening in 2020. And I really felt uh, alarmed by how the climate anxiety worlds I was now participating in weren't reckoning around racial justice and the role of climate anxiety in racial injustice. Climate anxiety can be very much taken up for pretty nefarious purposes, and it is getting politicized by, the, by white supremacists as we speak. Sarah's talking about a whole range of potentially dangerous responses here, from everyday racism to outright eco-fascist extremism, and she's right. It's a real danger when dealing with climate anxiety. Taking action on climate anxiety can be marching in a protest and other really beautiful things, but it can also be supporting a genocide. We can't look away from that reality. It's already happening. In 2019, a man named Patrick Krujus walked into a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, and shot and killed 23 people and injured 23 people after posting a manifesto on the internet that he titled an Inconvenient Truth. If you're not familiar, that's the title of Al Gore's documentary on climate change from the early 2000s. Crucius knew exactly what he was citing. So I really wanted to draw attention to that, that we weren't just talking about trying to cope with our climate anxiety amongst the progressive left, um, which I also care about, but that we really, while we were doing that, really needed to make sure that we saw how big white emotions around any topic, as including the environment or climate change, uh, need to be really uh, reckoned with in terms of how they end up landing and how they take how they take resources away from other um, other 
projects that are really important? It's important to note that even in the forms of climate anxiety that people like Elena from Teen Vogue are experiencing, systemic issues are still at play. I asked Celine Nurgun, a queer climate resilience practitioner and a somatic coach, what she thinks of the focus on climate anxiety. Why is climate anxiety attracting white and, and people of privileged backgrounds to the forefront of addressing this? Yale did a study a few years ago, and it showed that the people of the global majority, specifically Latina and his Hispanic people, have actually reported that they care the most about climate, uh, more than any, any other ethnic race, racial group. Celine is referring to a 2019 survey study from Yale's Program on Climate Change Communication in which respondents were asked how they felt about global warming on a continuum of emotions, with six options. Alarmed, concerned, cautious, disengaged, doubtful, or dismissive. In the study responses, 22% of white participants described themselves as alarmed about global warming. But for Black respondents, that number shoots up to 27%. And for Latino respondents, it's 37%. 15% more than for white respondents. So we have to understand that existing injustices and systems of oppression are exacerbated by climate anxiety, that they are one in the same, um, that millions of people around the world, particularly people of the global majority, the global south, uh, frontline communities, they have been experiencing existential dread far longer than any kind of term has been coined, right? Um, effects of colonialism, effects of displacement, forced migration. I actually want to share a quote from Sarah Jaquette Ray's essay. She means the Sarah that you just heard from a few minutes ago. In an essay Sarah wrote in Scientific American called Climate anxiety is an overwhelmingly white phenomena. Okay, here's the quote. Is climate anxiety just code for white people wishing to hold on to their way of life or get back to normal to the comforts of their privilege? Wendy sees that privilege plays a role in the experience of climate anxiety as well. Anxiety may be more anticipatory in focus. So it's about something that I'm worried about will happen, as opposed to a recognition of what's already happening. Maybe the term anxiety also signals something about a level of privilege of not having been affected yet, as opposed to the many communities and individuals who have been experiencing both direct impacts of, of climate change as well as all kinds of environmental harms. So given all these concerns, can climate-aware mental health care address climate anxiety and these overarching issues of systemic inequality? Is one-on-one -on -one therapy even the right place for this work? I can see climate anxiety being talked about is like, how do we cope as individuals and like move on? How do I go meditate on a pillow and then move on? And not to say that meditation is not helpful. It is a very good tool. But I'm, I'm seeing an I'm seeing individualized lens. Both Wendy and Celine have a lot to say about the limitations of individual work on the climate crisis. The way mainstream psychology and psychiatry has been set up in the West is to take care of individual problems. And that's how it's predominantly worked and operated, is to look at somebody and 
think these are isolated issues, they are your issues alone, and here's a solution and a treatment for you. When we over-individualize, we actually isolate ourselves. And that's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of unnecessary stress and pressure that we put on ourselves to solve something, to heal on our own, which is extremely challenging and some would even argue not possible because healing is very collective and trauma is collectively experienced. Wendy has also been wondering about the limitations of this individual focus. I think there is coming a questioning of some of our practices and wondering whether the systems of training and approaches that we've used have not kept up with the need. For example, individual therapy, which is my love. I mean, I love doing therapy with individuals, but I also see the limitations when we're talking about something as big as the climate and environmental crisis, that being sort of siloed in our consulting rooms with individuals is not going to reach the scale of need and reach the number of people that we're going to need to help. So it doesn't mean we'll stop doing individual therapy or that there won't be value or use in that. I think any approach that we already know as clinicians probably is applicable, but that we would expand our repertoire of ways of being able to engage and question whether some of our individual focus has been part and parcel of the very problem that has gotten our planet into this state. So if the focus on climate anxiety is actually a reflection of the hyper-individualization of our culture, and climate-aware therapy needs to move beyond this individualized lens, where should it go next? I was originally trained as a family therapist, and in family therapy, we use a model, a, a systems model. So I think very much systemically and ecosystems have so much to teach us. Our, our mind is an ecosystem. It's a system that can get out of balance that is affected by multiple inputs. Our interpersonal relationships create systems and our culture and our interconnection with the more than human world along with the human world, those are all systems of interaction. So the psychological field could benefit from continuing to think systemically and learning from what natural ecosystems have to teach us. As Wendy was sharing all this about emotional ecosystems and such, I was thinking, whoa, that's definitely not how my introductory psychology textbooks present pretty much anything about human behavior, mental health, or emotions. Wendy thinks shifting to an ecosystems lens could also radically change the way we take action. When people feel so helpless and so small in the midst of such a large problem, if we think systemically and we think that one person can make a difference, they can talk to someone else and that influences the way they're responding and they talk to someone else and each of them are in their own communities and systems making changes, that's how change happens. By the way, by one person, she also means one therapist. I think another arena that clinicians will probably 
need to get more and more involved in is community work, building community sources of resilience, empowering people within communities who are already the natural leaders, who know the culture of that community, to be able to apply some of their skills to emergent crises that are coming up as extreme weather events increase, as there's more climate disruptions. We're going to need all kinds of um, mental health professionals sort of on the ground helping in a variety of ways. So clinicians are going to be needed, but we will need to perhaps start thinking differently and more broadly. And as needs grow, we're going to need to you reach more individuals than we can sort of in the in our private consulting rooms even though i love my couch and my pillows <laughs> but um, but yeah so let's go back to that teen vogue article that 17 year old elena who's climate anxious and trained by her therapist to turn on the television to escape climate fears Is that how therapy for climate anxiety works? How it should work? Maybe you say yes. Maybe you say no. Maybe you say something fuzzier. Or maybe you can't say. I think that's part of the value of this whole public spotlight on climate anxiety in the first place. That at the edges of the spotlight's beam, where the lamp's intense glow on climate anxiety starts shifting to a murky unknown black, we start to get a glimpse of those strange, complicated creatures hiding in the shadows. And those shadows are the things that point, as surely as the unconscious mind points, to where we must go next. This is Climate Psychology Conversations. My name is Ray Tokfer, and thank you for listening to our very first episode. See you next time.